JJ, we don't have to do this now, but before we release this, we should definitely do like disclaimer at the beginning. We already have like a not safe for work warning label on the podcast, but we should be like, this one is not even safe Mm. for some of you home Mm -hmm. alone in your homes. Not safe for work or home. This is just not safe. This may be the threesome of your dreams, but it's not safe. Oh my God. Okay. Are you obsessed with chess, but also kind of fun at parties? Do you keep your opening prep on your bedside table right next to your feelings journal? Welcome to the Chess Feels Podcast, the only chess podcast dedicated to the social and psychological aspects of this game we know and love. And hate. Tune in every week to join me, professional chess teacher and amateur feelings haver, JJ Lang. And me, professional therapist and amateur checkmate finder, Julia Rios as we dive into our shared love for the game and attempt to answer the most burning question for every chess obsessive. Why are we like this? Yeah. Okay, settle the debate for Escoval. Do you yes. know what we're talking about today? No. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, that doesn't settle the debate. We both said that Gopal would have no idea what we were talking about. The debate was whether we were right or wrong, and the answers <laughs> were right, and we agree. So, okay, in, in broad strokes, we're talking about openings. Okay. Which is why we knew we had to have you. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you. No one else would do. Mm-hmm. No one else would do it. Everyone would do it. Everyone hates talking about openings. This is kind of the whole point. No one ever talks about openings. I feel like... All the people on chess Twitter, like, oh, God, they all want to talk about openings. It's so bad. Yeah, he's joking. (laughs) That's actually why we're here. So we're going to talk about this question of, you know, what openings you play and what that says about you. And we're going to talk about why people think that what you as like an opening expert and researcher think about that. Thank you. I thought it was a platform for me to roast people, but... Oh, it is also that obviously this will I mean, this will keep um, coming back. But this was like this was like the episode where like we have to do this. Okay. so that said, Gopal, um, please introduce yourself. JJ, please introduce me. All right. Ladies and gentlemen in the building, Professor Daddy himself, (laughs) National Master Gopal Menon. Hey, guys. Gopal is the living embodiment of chaotic good. Gopal is an incredibly strong chess player, but blitz specialist almost and opening, walking, living, breathing, shitting database. Gopal does work as seconds for various grandmasters. Gopal is always on the cutting edge of the opening and his knowledge and love of chess is truly astounding and working with Gopal as a coach has helped my game and my enjoyment for chess so much. And he's just one of my favorite people on the planet. And he can be Daniel Naroditsky at Blitz. Yes. Yes, that I have. That was when I knew I had a big crush on you, Gopal. Thanks. That's reverse sexism. So Gopal, the main thing we're really talking about is openings. And I guess maybe I'd love to hear a little bit more about your relationship with openings in particular. I'm curious how that happened and what your obsession, fascination with that phase of the game is i don't know it's exactly that like as somebody who i don't know is obsessive or passionate about some things in their life like i don't have any of that yeah well yeah of course uh chess was definitely one of them and then openings just somehow always attracted me like it started with bobby fisher's games when i was a kid i've seen almost every fisher game that i could get my hands on many times over and seeing his very scientific approach i liked his style And so I just started looking at those openings and like, those are some of the sharpest openings you can look at, you know, the knight or King's Indian, you know, attacking the Sicilian with the open Sicilian. I was very heavily influenced by Fisher. And even now, like, I still find myself coming back to a lot of those ideas. They just grabbed my imagination. I really don't know how. And sometimes I feel like I should be doing some actual studying, but I just can't stop. Even if it's for a student or some new idea for a grandmaster, it's just something that'll suck up like four hours easily. So when you're going down that rabbit hole, what is it that you're looking for? When do you feel like you've reached a good stopping point? Or when do you feel like satiated? Oh, with regards to a particular opening one? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just like to a point of clarity, you know, like you definitely don't want to analyze to a point where the engine gives zeros and, and think it's all good. You know, that really that's the most deceptive evaluation of all. But like if the line is very sharp, you know, you want to analyze to a point of clarity where things have kind of settled a bit. From the early action, there might still be tension, but you want to make sure you still have a certain plan. 
you know, like this is a problem that blackface is sometimes in lines of the Roy Lopez, uh, like some of the close variations or like Brayer, where I think Nagy wrote about this once, you know, a lot of the computers will give a lot of zeros in some lines, but black's actually just being suffocated with no mm. counterplay. You know, I mean, I've done it before. Like it's so irresponsible right when the action's starting and you've sacrificed a piece or a piece and a pawn and the engine's like, oh, you're all good, zeros. You're like, okay, sweet, job done. <laughs> you know, that's not going to happen. So you want to make sure that there's some sort of clarity and yeah, just being specific with your evaluations. It's interesting to hear about yeah. Gopal because I feel like I almost have yet to go through that process. I feel like when I started getting into chess, so much of the advice I was hearing was as a beginner, don't focus on openings, learn tactics, learn foundational principles. And so I did that for a long time. I didn't really explore openings at all. Honestly, like really until I met JJ and then I put together a real repertoire for the first time beyond, you know, I play E4. Um, mm-hmm. And it changed my chest profoundly, but I haven't had that same experience as you of, of really doing those deep dives into these novel ideas and grandmaster ideas. And whenever you talk about it, it makes me feel so excited. I'm like, oh, I want to do that. But it also feels simultaneously totally over my head. And I mean, that's an interesting point, too, because I think a lot of people do hear that typical advice like beginner and intermediate players don't obsess about the opening. And some people take that to heart and other people rebel against it because there's a glut of material out there on the openings. But I think even those people are probably having a similar experience to what Julia describes of still feeling that at the level of doing these deep dives on your own or something, it's all out of your head. And just to kind of flag like the major difference between what Gopal is talking about in terms of almost exploring and imagination capturing stuff that he's doing versus a sort of relationship to openings that is still primarily based on memorization and memorization Mm -hmm. of others ideas oh absolutely i mean i I just want to say like with regards to you know beginners being obsessed with openings you know i've done it and i've come out of it alive to tell the tale (laughs) Uh, but but like i mean you definitely can't can't do that for everybody you know especially if your time is limited as like an adult improver but you do need something. Uh, a lot of people, when I was younger, it would always place like just way too much importance on the end game. You know, like why does it make you feel like you're just you know really big brain for saying that? You know, like you're just so much smarter than everybody else. But I don't know. It like I always knew that you need some sort of openings just to get out of it alive. So the real question <laughs> I have for you, Gopal, the thing I'm most interested to know is what do you consider? your pet openings or what do you consider your go-to repertoire you know it's funny you ask that because it could literally change tournament to tournament uh like you know my main defense is black against e4 i find it so funny like brief story i was working with somebody to create some chess improvement platform and then so he was talking to me as a consultant briefly for his opening section. And I asked him like, okay, so here, let's use you as, as an example. What what do you play as Black? And so he's like, I play the Carol Khan. And then so I discovered further in the conversation that to him, the Carol Khan is E4, C6, that's it. <laughs> We've talked about this exact same thing. Right. It's not like D4, D5, you take, knight take, and then you show what kind of guy you are. Are you a knight of six guy? Even then, and like bishop f5, knight d7, whatever. So, you know, that's why I think my answer to your question is kind of funny. I mean, like I've played many lines, almost every line of the open Sicilian with both colors, you know? Yeah. Um, And also a few anti-Sicilians with with both colors. So yeah, definitely the Sicilian for sure. Nimzo Indian, that's a big specialty of mine. And like, uh, I have a lot of interesting Queen's Gambits in my repertoire. Like, so for the last seven years, I've on and off been playing the Ragozin, a specialty of uh, my grandmaster, enemy of the podcast guy I do second work for, Nikola Mitkov. He's been playing the the Ragozin for for like almost his entire life. Lately, I've been trying to keep things chill. You know, some E4, E5 is black. It's very nice to play that way, especially now that like, you know, getting older and yeah, I mean, it just, it's a more professional approach. Like sometimes Sicilian can be a bit too volatile and I don't have a lot of energy for it sometimes. 
Man, I have not not played the Sicilian in so long. I feel like if I accidentally played E5, I would panic and be like, I don't even remember how to do this. Well, you could also do what I did. I went through a big 1G6 phase, like a big Tiger's modern phase. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then also the Philidor is black, too. I, I've played that quite a bit as well, inviting an early queen trade, like through the perk mover. Yeah, I played the perk for a little bit. I feel like that's kind of a nice one for beginners because it is so straightforward and you do get such a solid structure. It's hard to go too wrong. So you can really set up and come out of the opening. Yeah. Not with a big disadvantage with black, which is nice. Oh, for sure. When you decide it's time for a change in what you've been playing, not necessarily tournament for tournament, but like really like entering a new phase of like, I'm really trying to make a bigger switch to E5. What are some of the triggers for that kind of decision point? What would trigger that change is definitely the character of play. A lot of times to play a very sharp open Sicilian, let's say in your case, the Richter Rouser, you know? Nice. I think I've told you this, but I've always felt that all my Richter Rouser games are some of the most intense games of my life, Mm. you know? Mm-hmm. And so even if your opponent doesn't play the best line and, you know, you have a good position, like the character play is so volatile that you could start burning time on the clock easily and you're spending so much energy. And just that character of play might not suit you, even if you have decent results or have gotten away with it for the time being. So, you know, if you want something more chill, you know, you can let your experience come to the forefront, then that would probably be a situation where I would consider a switch. And I, I love considering a switch. You're on a podcast with two switches. So. Me too. And a subverse. <laughs> All oh, right. Sick. I know. Look at this trio. That's dangerous. That's like the Avengers. <laughs> over here. Um, the other question I wanted to ask about that is since you do a lot of teaching and have worked with a lot of people, what is your experience when people come to you saying they're thinking about switching openings? This is a question I see a lot. What's your sense of when people ask that question where they're coming from? And the reason I'm asking is I don't think it's the same answer you just gave. So what are your sense for the reasons why people in general are thinking about switching openings? People will naturally tend to base things off of their experience. You know, have you ever taught like a beginner who is like, I don't castle because I always lose when I do that? Of course. (laughs) That's also why a lot of them don't push H3. Yes. Yeah. Or H6. Yeah, for sure. But they might have some bad experiences in some openings. And then you put the games under the microscope and like, yeah, some of the games could have early errors. Sometimes it is like a character of play issue. You know, I've had one student who's a really attacking aggressive player with white and my modern defense bad habit uh, is black. And like for many years, they were just suffering with no space. And, you know, you could tell it wasn't the opening for them to unleash their imagination and let their strong skills come to the forefront. I think there's also, as players are improving, a lot of people underestimate how much work it is to learn all of that in the opening that you've already been playing for a couple of years at like a lower rating level. And their natural reaction is, well, you know, my results are getting worse, so I just need a different opening. And that's just always the one that scares me. And I don't know if this is true within the students that you coach, but I would say that's the thing that I see the most often. Like as my rating is going up, I feel like I'm outgrowing my opening. Like it's not successful for me anymore, as opposed to Mm -hmm. there are some other parts of my game that might be creating that ceiling in my rating. Right. Or the games are not necessarily decided there, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And if you analyze the games, they're actually getting out of the opening just fine. And then maybe you have other holes or maybe you have less knowledge about how to play the kinds of positions you're getting. But maybe that's true, right? If you're like a 900 playing the Stafford Gambit and then you get up to 1300 and then your results in the Stafford Gambit aren't as good, that might be a good reason. Kind of like an example of that. It wasn't necessarily that I felt that I was quote unquote outgrowing some of the E4, Knight C3 stuff, but I Mm -hmm. felt like I was almost been experiencing a chest malaise, which we'll talk about in an episode that comes out before this. And then when you started studying the Catalan for some of your tournaments, it made me feel excited about chess for the first time in a couple of weeks. And then I started just doing it too, because it was good to have that feeling. Um, And it was cool Mm -hmm. to see those lines. And Gopal, I saw some of the lines that you and JJ prepped. I think that was like a week or two weeks ago. And it made me feel excited about chess. So that's another thing too. Like I feel like different openings kind of tap into different things about chess that we either feel excited or not excited about. 
I think I, I said to somebody recently that if I could play like the winner were French with both colors every game, I would die happy, like dot, dot, dot of a heart attack at age 33. But happy. I mean, yeah, seriously, you're talking about like entering the, the main positions with the double pawns and everything. Yeah. Those are, those positions are so, so demanding. Like, I just feel like every time like I play it as white, I feel like it's such a struggle. I'm taking all these strategic risks and then I'm like, oh, okay, yeah uh 4.92 next time <laughs> <laughs> and the next time comes and then the adrenaline starts pumping right exactly i mean it's no it, it the french defense is such a beautiful opening i don't understand why all the memes kind of shit on it it just doesn't make any sense but that is almost the beginner mentality right of well yeah. i blocked in my bishop so this must be bad that's an opening principle i gotta get my pieces out well first, why do we so... listen to these people in the first place that's what we that's what we should really be asking. <laughs> it is a dominating voice online. <laughs> Fucking terrible. That's a good reason to not listen to it. Well, that's a really good segue. And this is, this is an idea that's predated social media for sure. But this idea that certain openings are good and bad. Certain openings, you know, are for losers versus the cool kids. Certain openings just lead to passive play versus more active play. And I guess my question is, how do you think certain openings get the reputations they do as like the shitty ones or the uncool ones? I don't know. I was thinking like, okay, the French is kind of an easy target, you know, because it allows the exchange variation. But those people are like kind of also considered pariahs of the right. chess world. But it, the exchange French is actually like, it's a very smart choice. When we talk about these strategically complex lines of the winnower, right? Like the exchange French, it's it's underestimated. Like there's a lot of life, like a lot of pieces are still on the board. That was one of the biggest revelations. Like last summer, I was seconding my friend Alex Velikanov, FM Wisconsin. And like he he plays the exchange French. And then so I was like, hmm, I'm going to learn this entire repertoire. So I researched it and I actually found it very interesting. Even Magnus played a couple of good games. But like going back to how it, it gets... Uh, certain openings get their reputation like you know i think if people hate something like they're gonna naturally shit on it so the french defense is very solid it's like it's not the easiest opening to beat so it's, it's natural for people to shit on it and that's probably how it gets his reputation and in addition to what you're saying about openings being hard to beat i think also a lot of the openings that get shit on to some exception are hard to play or at the very least they're hard to play properly but wouldn't the London fly in the face of that, JJ? I, that is why I started to hedge. But I was going to say for the French, for instance, it's very easy to quote unquote play the French in the way that person Gopal was consulting for plays the Karakhan, where you put your pawn on e6 and maybe d5, and then you play knight c6 and never play to undermine. And you're like, fuck this opening. This sucks. And I think that the London clearly is an easy opening to play. But the reason I had that hedge that anticipated Julia's low, low blow of a question was uh, was the London's a very easy opening to play in the very basic sense of if you play the Karo Khan by playing 1c6, you can play the London that way up to move seven or eight. And in that sense, it's a great opening for you. Yeah, like but a scheme. It is a scheme. But in right. another sense, you know, if that's how you're playing the London, you're losing any opportunity for nuance or interest or picking subtleties or variations based on your opponent's setup. And you're going to end up in an incredibly sterile and dry position every time. And then you might actually still hate playing it because it's a scheme, but you've lost the opportunities to deviate in a way that could be fun. Yeah. And because it could transform different rich positions. And, you know, also, too, the, just one thing I'll say about certain solid schemes like that. I've noticed a tendency, especially like with adult improvers who want to stay solid or whatever. So they pick some of these more like solid schemes naturally. Um, the Benoni? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Benoni, <laughs> you know, the Richter Rouser, the French winner, everything. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. Overthinkers edition. I really hope someone listens to this and is <laughs> writing it down and they're like, okay, keep it simple. Play the London and the Bononi is black. <laughs> man, that like, <laughs> it's funny. Just a quick sidetrack. I've thought about making like, man, what's the most like messed up repertoire? And so London and Benoni, that would be, that would be up there. That's probably the most fucked up. That's a fucking combo. But isn't that exactly what our dearest friend JJ Lang plays? Yes. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> I guess. Wow. Inside me, there are two wolves. <laughs> yeah, okay, seriously. okay, I love it. Can you take the Benoni wolf out of you and tell him to come over to my room real quick? No, I'm just kidding. But anyway, uh, <laughs> am I the Benoni wolf? Sorry, I keep talking. You're inside JJ right now. Not right now. 
Okay, well, yeah, I was just, I was just, if you're the Benoni wolf, I just want that wolf to come over and be inside of me for a few minutes. I'll, I'll, I'll bring him back. The Benoni yeah, wolf sorry. never pulls out. <laughs> is that what you wanted? That is such the fucking vibe. There you go. Is that what you wanted, like Julia? That. Is that what you wanted? How did you know? How could you tell? Welcome, Gopal. Are you having a good time? I love it. I, I love it, honestly. I just wish I wasn't so hungover. Um, what are your other examples of weird rep combinations? Man, that's a great question. I, I know one guy who I follow a lot, very strong online player and a really good theoretician, but I have no idea who he is. Um, he plays, he's like E4 players white, so that caught my attention, but he's he plays a Scandinavian uh, with Queen E5 check as black, right. and then he plays the semi trash is black. So like he has this like very trashy black repertoire. Semi trashy. <laughs> That's such a good joke, JJ. Yeah, that is cute. I like that. I'm never going to call it anything in my head besides semi trashy from now on. <laughs> that's a, that's an endearing name. I kind of like it, honestly. And every time you play it, you have a semi, right? A little bit un- until I start to see it too much. Then, you know, it wears off. Desensitization is real, yeah. Yeah, it loses the novelty. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, like, you know, what's interesting is that it's so much easier to make all these trashy repertoires with black Mm -hmm. than it is with white, you know, because, okay, with white, it's kind of like a serve. And if we're to extrapolate from the example of uh, reversed openings, let's say the Stanislav, for example, as black is one of the most dynamic and exciting variations you could play in the Queen's Gambit. But if you use it as white, like playing the Kali system or with C3, right. E3, like it feels a bit mushy as John Watson puts it. So I think if you try to get too trashy with white, like, yeah, it's a little bit harder, you know? It's yeah. the advantage of information. The three of us could pull it off. I think we could make it happen. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, look, 1B3 is a great start. Like, you don't really compromise anything yet, and you haven't shown, like, who you really are. There is something to that. What's the trashiest white repertoire? You mean the white trash repertoire? (laughs) Uh, Hillbilly attack in the Karakhan. What else? Ew. Oh, God. Yeah. Like, it's not even anything special, really, if they return the pawn. Okay, so Hillbilly attack in the Karakhan. I mean, wing gambit, let's say. Yeah, we're getting there. Against Sicilian and French. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, I think it's a legit gambit, though, against the French. But what else is there? Before we get too far off, off this topic, another question I did have for you, Gopal. When you are about to go play in a tournament, how do you almost decide what you're going to pull from your rep? I feel like you have such a wide repertoire. So is it just all gut feel and instinct? What guides what you decide to play on any given day or any given weekend? Well, it depends on like what I've been uh, looking at lately, like what I've checked, if it's a sharp line and I expect maybe there's some developments or something in the literature I haven't considered, which is funny, like even uh, a lot of strong grandmasters don't keep up to date with the latest chessable courses or literature to see how it might conflict with their repertoires. Like it's none of that. And like, you know, even if I pick something that I'm feeling really good about, it could change moment to moment, like. You know, some of the best preparation that you do is during the tournament because you're already in the zone, you're already focused a little bit, and you're just thinking a bit more about chess, and you can find stuff that you've overlooked when you're in that zone. But yeah, that's that's kind of how I decide. It's a lot based on my mood. In light of talking about this idea of openings being indicative of the style of player you are, or your personality more generally, and how that's clearly bullshit and coming out of like a lack of hatred, which I would say is also a lack of understanding. Let's make a BuzzFeed quiz for figuring out what kind of opening are you and what kind of questions should we ask about a person's life and day and stuff in order to put together the perfect quiz, which we can then sell them to mine all their data. So I'm trying to think like the last one I did of those was which real housewives character are am i so i'm trying to think what type of questions were there so it was like pick your perfect night is it like a night out with the girls cuddling with your cat yeah yeah that's a good question oh and like how do you handle conflict and see for me shutting down wasn't an option so i had to choose like being catty with the rest of your co-stars or whatever so. yo why that's they, they didn't how do they not put shutting down i don't know it's like my favorite thing to do but <laughs> shutting down go <laughs> Yeah. How um okay so how do you handle conflict what kind of answers would direct us to which kinds of openings shutting down okay so shutting down would take us to shutting for- down again but in red no I'm just kidding yeah what's the most avoidant opening exchange French no what is actually that's a great question B six 
Beast. <laughs> or Beast. Yeah, wait, I like that's a good answer. Yeah, yeah. I love that. <laughs> oh, like a hippo. Nice, nice, nice. Yeah. And um, I can see that for uh, and so for um being catty with other people. So catty or passive aggressive. What openings are those? Scandinavian. Nice. I was gonna say like perk modern. I think Scandi oh. is a good one though. Scandi's a really good one, and I liked how quick that was. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or Aliakin because uh, or Aliakin's defense because he had a cat uh, whose name was Chess. So yeah, I don't know why that made sense, but okay. Anyway, what are some other Julia therapist help us out? What are some other ways people can handle conflict? Um, explosive, someone who just blows up. Mm-hmm. Okay, here let let's switch it up to to D four maybe. Nice. What what d- responses to D four could Albin? Yeah, I was thinking Albin. Yeah, for sure. Albin counter gambit definitely. Albin yeah, like Budapest. Um, what about <laughs> repression? Ooh. Yeah, we talked about this on Chess Pit. Ooh, uh, E4, Knight F6, E5, Knight G8. <laughs> that is so funny. <laughs> I was going to say, like, Snake Benoni. Ooh. Oh, is that, that repressed? Where, like, with the bishop well, on D6 it, instead of yeah, the pawn? Yeah. Well, it goes to C7 and then to D6. like you know, Well, it gets like out that, eventually. You know? That's the point of repression. Oh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Or Bishop E5, like you could come out, like, I mean, yeah, it could, it could happen very quick. Or man, if you tuck it back to F8, oof, that's going to stay there for a while. <laughs> yes. Okay. That's a good one. Um, and what about a more positive conflict style? Something that's like a collaborative or accommodating. What's that? <laughs> it's when two people work together. That's a myth. <laughs> when they love each other very, very much, go ball. Prearranged draw. <laughs> Pre-arranged oh, Berlin draw. draw. Yeah, <laughs> that is such a good one. Zaitsev yeah, draw. <laughs> um. Yeah. Okay. Like a. Um, that's a. Okay. So here, what was the the style of handling again? Gopal's literally never heard of this concept before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. My mind is blown. <laughs> Collaborative. Oh, geez. When uh, two people are working together through the conflict to reach a mutually beneficial goal. Oh, it's definitely prearranged draw, like some line the poison pawn knight or for sure. Just to clarify, I always thought a collaborative approach to conflict is when you like send a screenshot of the text messages of the person you're in conflict with to your group chat, and then everyone gets together to roast them. <laughs> what, what opening would that be? <laughs> oh, um, I mean, oh. probably like Bishop G5 Knight Earth, because that's like what I always show to y'all when I need help. Yeah, that's true. What um, What is the favorite opening of uh, gaslighters and manipulators? What is a male manipulator opening? I think King's Gambit. That's the first thing I think. Of. Whoa. Whoa. I love it. Okay. <laughs> Those are some fighting words. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What feels manipulative? Okay. I just want a more specific mani- manipulation example so I can get the vibe. Men who DM me and say, what's your rating? But I like men who like, just ask if you like want to play a game, like no context, no introduction, just like. Do they think that you're going to like fall in love with them if you play a game of chess with them? Oh, that happens at least once or twice a week. I know. Yeah. Now that my DMs are closed, JJ, people will actually just tweet and at me and send me game invites. <laughs> but now it has to be public on Twitter, like where everyone can see it because you can't DM me unless I follow you. And then I can roast them. I'm going to start tagging you, Gopal. I'm just going to send them your mm. your Lee Chess at and you can play them. We can make a like Julia account that Gopal has the password to that like responds to all of these challenges. Oh, wow. Yeah, <laughs> And speaking of avoidance, let's uh, <laughs> let's go back to male manipulators and, and gaslighters. Oh, what shit. Uh, openings do we have for them? I think I'm getting where I want to. Um, sorts of lines in the Scotch Gambit and Italian Gambit that have been refuted, but they play very confidently yep. and forcefully. Yes. Wait, JJ, that's brilliant. It's it's all the men who try to play fried liver when I played the Sicilian. <laughs> <laughs> At my level, Gopal, this happens once a month. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Oh, I love it. Ew, who let the men on the internet? Seriously. I'm like, do not gaslight me. I have already played C5, sir. Oh, also, even worse, I play the cons. Well, I played C5 and E6, and I still get attempts at fried liver. G5. Yeah. G5 X Man, <laughs> that's why okay. your DMs are closed, huh? Unfortunately, you can't do that on Lee Chess, as far as I know. What were you? 
What were you saying when I interrupted oh, you? I feel like you had a good thought. Yeah. Oh, it was just literally people who, if they see you moving really fast, like you're pre-moving your King's Indian or something, when you play G6, they just blitz out Bishop H6, relying on you pre-moving Bishop G7 and then just taking it. I feel like that <laughs> that's like a male manipulator opening too. Yeah, for sure. I guess so. Yeah. I, maybe I that's more that. maybe that's more of like a pickup artist thing because it's a lot more of like a trick than it is a sort of like vibe yeah oh yeah, yeah for sure yeah and you see the highlight reels like where it where it works and then like of course my favorite things to do with my cousin like me and him we've watched probably like every pickup artist cringe compilation and we hold hands to comfort each other those are my favorite pictures that you post on social media <laughs> i know right because <laughs> you do the same thing with your cousin right while watching Impractical Jokers. Yes, how did you remember that? Oh, I hope Katie listens to this. Yeah, when we watch Impractical Jokers, it's so cringe, but we love it. We have to literally work through the cringe together. Yeah, and then like, yeah, we pause and then we yell at the screen and all that stuff. I wonder what a peacocking chess opening would be. Maybe like playing the the Poison Pawn Night Orf when you're like a thousand or something. Literally posting any progress on like a lifetime repertoire when you're below... 2000, 2400 is peacocking. Oh God, that is peacocking. <laughs> what are some other terms that, well, anyway, that could be a separate <laughs> pickup artist podcast. <laughs> like, you know, but, oh, oh, speaking of pickup artists, like yeah. this is a good segue to yeah. sexual proclivities. Here we were talking about this whole idea of chess opening, saying something deep and profound about your character. And so we were talking about, but is there anything that openings can actually tell us about a person? And so Gopal, do you think there is anything that you can learn about a person from seeing what openings they play? You know, they can say something about their personalities, but definitely more I think they can tell you a lot about their sexual proclivities. Ooh. For sure. That makes a lot of sense. I remember reading that in multiple books, and I know it's maybe a little bit overdone, but we should definitely talk about that a little bit. So why do you think there is such good insight into like how people have sex and like to have sex and <laughs> what openings they play? I mean, great question. Like as somebody who's saving himself for divorce. For my divorce, right? <laughs> y- yes. Whichever one of us goes first. Yes, exactly. Too bad your DMs are closed. <laughs> Um, they're, they're open to you, Gopal. Oh, sweet. Um, I'm not sure. I, I kind of would like to defer to the therapist on this one. Mm, like, Julia, idea. you have a good knowledge of a wide range of openings. Like, Yeah. I mean, I think for the same reason that we map it onto all personality traits, right? Like some things are just a little bit less inhibited. Some are a little more repressed. Some are more playful. Some are more adventurous. I think that we can map it on exactly the same ways. We all have a gut feel like we all kind of know. Right. So Gopal, let's put you on the spot. Which openings fit JJ and myself to the best of your knowledge? Oh, Ooh. individually and together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you don't say the grob for me, I'm going to flip this table over. <laughs> uh, I mean, OK, so like if you if you guys have it. Oh, God. I love how almost uncomfortable you are. No, no. I'm just like, I, I wish I was better prepared for this. This is an open, safe space. As long as you say the grab. Um, let's say for JJ, definitely the Benoni. Right. If you enjoy disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I really do. Yeah. He knows me. I didn't want to say that to Julia because I don't want Michael to feel like I'm adding him or whatever. Mm. You can mm. nag Michael. He likes it. So, <laughs> um, for Julia, I don't know. I kind of get a Dutch defense vibe from you. What vibe, Gopal? A Dutch defense vibe. Mm, okay, say more. Yeah, like, you know, a Leningrad or a Stonewall. Like, it's a pretty switchy opening, I would say. I really like the idea that you just called Julia a Stonewall when it comes to <laughs> sexual proclivities. Well, I mean, if that invokes some sort of phallic image, like, I mean, well, what about the grob for Julia? How, oh. how phallic is that? <laughs> I did like the switchy. I think that's true. Um, yeah, I can get on board with all of us. What's yours, Gopal? I want to actually ask that same question to you guys. Yeah. I, I feel like, Gopal, the way that I have come to know you in the chess space when I hear you talk about openings is that 
you're like a chess freak. <laughs> oh God, I am. Like mm. your Nimzo Indian stuff is kind of wild. Your G4 things are a, a little edgy. I feel like it's got to be something really good. It's the D4, Knight F6, C4, A6. Oh no. That has yeah. a reputation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, a little quirky. You could, I could see that. I could definitely how do you see, see that. How do you see yourself go, Paul? I don't know. I mean, I used to be a huge Grunfeld player, but like not so much anymore. Um, I mean, now nowadays I kind of stick to the Kings Indian, like sometimes Benoni. Why are we like pretending to brainstorm all these openings when we know that all three of us are just Benonis? That's true. That is true. I mean, like, am I a switch? Is is there such thing as a switch verse? Yes, obviously. Yeah. Here, let me look this up real quick. I wonder if there's a BuzzFeed quiz for this. Oh, we could all take that. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just figure this out once and for all. Yeah. I guess maybe switch verse. Interesting. I, I have to take a shit and I kind of want to have a smoke. Is it okay? Do you have enough time? Just, just smoke on the toilet. So you just do those at the same time. I've tried that. <laughs> you said you're a verse. Make it happen, Gopal. I wish he was recording himself on the toilet. I know. Me too. What is Gopal's opening? Gopal reminds me of like a, I don't know, but something kinky. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, he really could be like a hedgehog because I mean, I was thinking like it's all about being very restricted, but then like also very dynamic. I mean, it's a very verse opening. And it's also I don't know, like sometimes you're looking at it as like this person just loves to literally be suffocated. Oh, that's true. It's like tie me up. And then other times it's like this person is just ripping you open. Yeah. It's like such a switch. Yeah. OK. Oh, my God. You fucking convinced me. Go Paul sit on my face, man. We can keep that in and then we, we, we can we can keep all that in and like he can hear the episode. But he'll probably never listen to it and be like, what the fuck? And just no, he's not going to listen, he's not to, gonna listen to this. I can tell you guys to listen to the podcast. Yeah. Imagine going on a podcast and not having listened to that podcast before. To every second of every episode before. Wow, Gopal, that was really fast. <laughs> I mean, I had to test out my theories. <laughs> so I was thinking about some good verse openings, I guess, or mm -hmm. switch verse. So like, you know, a uh, interesting repertoire idea could be like Sicilian is black, like whatever Sicilian line you want. Uh -huh. But then, you know, shameless plug for my latest article, C3E5C4. <laughs> and then, you know, if C3D5, Knight F3, C5, C4 with a reverse. That panel. is switchy. It's like, or I don't care if I'm white or black. I'm going to still play my weird shit. Yeah, exactly. I, I love like that. It. I was making the claim to Julia, by the way, while you were out that the hedgehog is one of the kinkiest openings. Oh, right. definitely. Yeah. Heavy kink. Because like sometimes you see it and it's like, damn, this is like so aggressive. It's so dynamic. It's so tactical. And the other person's like, does this person like want to be smothered? Do they want to be <laughs> Like, are oh, they just yeah. into breath play? <laughs> oh, not. exactly. Or not. Or, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like, you know, let's say you meet somebody, right? And then whatever, you go home together. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're in your little hedgehoggy vibes and stuff. And then they're countering with the traditional F3, B3. like. But then you get to back up to it. You're like, okay, never mind. <laughs> Keep the handcuffs in my purse. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. And then, okay, whatever. Then you meet the person with F4 and G that comes at you with F4 and G4. You're like, oh God, what did I get myself? <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, that's like, we were talking, we were talking about like, in addition to this idea of kinkier versus less kinky openings, also the idea of openings that think they're kinky versus kinky openings and how like something like the Ooh. fried liver is like somebody who's watched 50 shades of gray once and is like, yeah, you could say I have a dark side. <laughs> right. Or like, <laughs> then they like pull out a belt and spank you one time. <laughs> Just very, very gingerly. And then straight to missionary. What openings do people who think they're good in bed, but aren't what openings do they play? Oh, that's, that's a great, question i know oh. to continue with the theme of dunking on my repertoire i mean probably the night orf like at like the club level but people give that up quick i think someone who plays the night orf and sticks with the night orf maybe they weren't great at first but they were confident and then they figured it out and like learned some new tricks most people i feel like try the night orf get the floor wiped clean with them and then they're too scared to ever play the Nidorf ever again. And they're like, oh, it's too much theory. Fuck the Nidorf. Someone who plays the Nidorf and sticks with the Nidorf, fine. Maybe at the beginning, 
it's a little clunky, but they end up kind of knowing what they're doing. Unless they like losing 18 moves and they're like, was that good for you? <laughs> <laughs> but then do they keep doing it? That's yeah. my question. Yeah. And they keep well, losing yeah. that person that that person sucks in bed. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. But- I mean, that's that's like that's big bottom energy, I would say. Like no, 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 no. Don't we don't we don't just we don't hate bottom. on bottom. Yeah. Yeah, what's what what's a what's a bottom opening and what's a power bottom opening? I'm not sure. No, it, it's not it's not uh, shitting on bottoms at all. It's, Some bottoms like that. Well, ex- exactly. I mean, like I think the bottom that loses in, in 18 moves in the night or okay, that's kind of an occupational hazard. And then they but they keep doing it though. That's the thing. That's the the bottom energy I'm thinking. Or like doing something very irresponsible and enter the sharpest line without any protection or i mean you know theoretical knowledge but i was thinking about it like an opening for somebody who thinks they're they're good in bed but aren't like let's say oh you know a semi-slav player right but then with after bishop g5 you know you're not playing the botvinic variation with dc4 or going into the moscow gambit with h6 but you play like bishop e7 you know something mm-hmm. like oh, that totally some, like yeah very it's very specific CGD. yeah i totally agree semi-slav is vanilla missionary energy no 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 it it's not it's, if you play yes. yeah well it could be if you play at with my level it totally so. is yeah i agree with that yeah you could spice it up because you're a hedgehog girl but no but but this is an opening that spices itself up you have to work really hard to not spice up that opening people do it i don't but... know no i think this is where i kind of agree with with julie a bit more like it you know because like people at that level will play like bishop e7 or or decent yes. like you know think they're doing something special or or maybe the club player that thinks they're like big brain by playing the ready you know mm. and, but then it, actually they've just given up their whole center but they still think they're <laughs> like they're sophisticated or good in bed you know oh I think that, that works yeah because it sounds like big bde but yeah but you can't you know, do it right you just lose your center it happens okay I'm nervous <laughs> i know i'm nervous too or nervous um, I was going to say another kind of opening in a very different direction of someone who thinks they're good in bed, but aren't are people who do something like the Berlin trying to get into the Berlin endgame and then just aren't good at endgames. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I, yeah. Could, see, I could see that. The yeah. people who are like, I'm a very positional player. I'm a very solid player. I like the endgame and just trade away any sort of strategic <laughs> advantage into a worse endgame. I think that mm-hmm. works. And it's like, no, you're just afraid of keeping the pieces on. What about someone who comes off as being kind of repressed and maybe a little vanilla, but then is like secretly a closet freak? I think that's like what a lot of my repertoire is, I think. Yeah, Joe Bava London 100% fits that perfectly. We think of the London as being very buttoned up, but then it's like, no, I'm down to clown. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. With Knight C3, you could kind of tell like, uh, you know, that's a little kinky already. That's like, you know, you're about to square up your tab at the bar and then you look at this person and like you both have that look in your eyes that you know. And then they just say something. You're like, oh, OK. It's like, like <laughs> the, the energy just, just that's shifted, the wink. You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, OK, so what what other types of openings are we are we looking for for sexual proclivities? I think we were going to get on the topic of bottom openings. Yeah, let's do top and bottom openings. Yeah, yeah. I think the bottoms can go first for once. Why is it not just like, again, Eric Modern? I was going to say one, yeah, G6. Like, No, I think so. Yeah, definitely. I think G6, I mean, as a reformed modern addict myself, yeah, I could, I could definitely see it. I mean, maybe, maybe power bottom is more because like these are incredibly dynamic and aggressive openings, but they're very much in response to. So I'd say maybe power bottom and then maybe like more of a traditional bottom is like Karakhan. Well, the classical variation of the Karakhan where, you know, with Bishop F5, where both sides castle queenside. It's like two bottoms kind of arguing like who's going to climb on top tonight. See, this is why it's so chaotic. So many things are happening in my mind as we have this conversation. So like, you know, somebody that comes off as quiet, but it's like kind of a low key freak, like. You know, what about the Karo Khan player that plays uh, after knight take e4, knight f6, uh, knight take f6, gf6? I don't think I've ever seen someone play that against me. It's kind of, it's it's out of uh, style. The Bronstein Larson uh, Karo Khan, it's called. But like, you know, those are two of the highest key freaks, I think, in chess. Like, there are lots of different setups Black can use, apart from the obvious castling queenside, you know. The real freaks that opening have shown the virtues of castling kingside sometimes with bishop g7 and short castle. It doesn't look like it makes a lot of sense sometimes. Which kind of goes back to our point that we made at the very beginning, which was it's not really about the opening. You can 
be a freak and open with the Caro Khan. There's no need to say I need to totally overhaul everything because the opening isn't working for me. And mm-hmm. it's great to have lots of things in your rep, but you can play the Caro Khan and do some cool shit. And that's why when people try and like distill the kind of opening you play into the kind of person you are, even in this very intelligent and this thing that we're doing, it's like, no, you're kind of missing the point. It's like, if you're, if you're like in touch enough with who you are, you're going to have that shine through no matter what you play. And I I can understand why you would want to really kind of emphasize that point, JJ, as someone who does play the London and just gets dunked on, on Twitter all the time. I see why you want to stand up for yourself. Well, no, it's their loss. Um, I was thinking also, though, for a true top opening, I have a controversial pick here. Oh, my God. I can't wait. Trumpowski. Hmm. Love it. Yes. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Like you're like you're. Yes. I was. Yeah. Because you're totally yeah. whatever they do, you're going to get the kind of position that you want and are prepared for. And it's not necessarily what the direction they were going in. And they have very, very little say in what it's going to look like. Yeah, for sure. There's definitely something for everybody in the Trumpowski like there are so many different exponents, for example, Hodgson, you know, a true, perhaps top freak. Yeah, there's definitely something for everybody there, for sure. And relatedly, I think you might like this one, too, for top openings is that Bishop's opening for white. I knew you would like that. Yeah. You listeners can't see this at home, but Gopal's whole face just lit up. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I'm like, now I have like flow by proxy from that. I mean, it, what's nice about it is like you can choose a direction to go into a traditional quiet Italian, you know, or you could go into some like Vienna type setup. The Vienna feels kind of toppy to me because when I play the Vienna, that's when I'm sort of like, I want to be able to decide how this opening goes. And no matter how Black responds, I can still put the pressure where I want it. Right. And it's not necessarily your traditional E4, E5 type game. Like, you know, there are lots of favorable transpositions to a king's gambit where you don't have to get yeah upon, yeah like, you know, that's some good shit don't need to be inconvenienced in such a way and then there's the true like switch verse ways to play the vienna where like you play knight c3 and then g3 knight oh G2. okay yeah the, yeah that's how yeah yeah and like you don't even have to decide if you're playing for f4 or g4 for a while and it- i would say d5 is is the top move there after knight c3 knight f6 g3 d5 yeah because then you're like this is what we're doing yeah that's what Evan played against me. I did lose a Vienna game to Evan Rosenberg. Hmm. I guess he's an NM, so he probably should have taken that one. But I really thought I had a chance. As this is going on, I just saw a tweet that says that in whatever one of those online rapid tournaments, Magnus just opened a game against Duda with one F3. What does that say about Magnus's sex life at the moment? I think he's flirting with Ben Feingold. <laughs> I was thinking um, about this time. I, I remember... Um, talking uh, to this one grandmaster who I saw play E4, C6, F3, and Whoa. his opponent played E5, and then D4 was the continuation. So I asked him, well, okay, well, what if he just played E4, C6, F3, D5? And he said he was just going to transpose to the fantasy variation with, with D4, which we need to decide where the fantasy variation belongs. I think it's top energy, but mm-hmm. you know, it could really end up being bottom pretty quickly, depending on... We need to get JJ to play the fantasy. I think that's the one... One of the big differences in our reps. Yeah, we talked about that. I mean, as a big fan of Nigel Short, like he... Yeah, it's more of a personality thing that keeps me coming back to the short variation. I guess like one more category I kind of want us to talk about would be an opening for those seeking a third. Oh, I love that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, not just a normal threesome, but like that specific type, like the seeking a third, you know, where the, you know... What opening says we saw you from across across the bar bar. and we liked your vibe. (laughs) That's exactly what I was thinking, JJ. What would that be? I want to say Cat- Catalan for some reason is the first thing that came to mind. I don't know. No offense, JJ. I'm a Catalan person no, myself. Um, I-, I don't think that this is a point of offense at all. Come back to our fianchettoed house. Yeah, I could see that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll show you our long diagonals. Mm, okay. Double fianchetto. Yeah, Dear I could God. see that. Yeah. It has to be something with the double... Have you ever been double fianchettoed? <laughs> <laughs> In chess, yeah. <laughs> you guys, we're about to end this episode. We never talked about Bong Cloud. Good. I feel like the people are going to be disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> that's definitely the the person that thinks that they're good in bed, you know, but they're not like. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> that's the person who like won't let their partner finish. Yeah, seriously. I'm going to edge you for 18 seconds and um, then I'm going to turn on the TV. <laughs> that's specific. Are you okay? I mean, I know we... We've answered a lot of questions in this episode, but I think the only thing 
that has been clarified for me is that none of us are okay, really. <laughs> totally agree. As a licensed therapist, we should all go to therapy. Who would be our therapist? That's a that's an interesting polycule. Yeah, who would be our therapist? Nigel Short. Ben Johnson. Ben Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> ben Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> Ben, please, we need you. We're all having a bad time. All right, Ben Johnson and all of our other listeners, <laughs> thanks for <laughs> thanks for making it to the end. How many people do you think will listen well, to this podcast? Everyone who plays the London for sure, they have stamina. Hey, hedgehoggers like us, you know, they have to have stamina. If you play the hedgehog, tweet at us with a link of you playing the hedgehog and you will be entered to win our weekly prize of a premium membership to Lee Chess. As always, thank you for letting us take you into this deep, dark forest. Where two plus two equals five, and the path leading out is only wide enough for listeners like you. Intro and outro music provided by JPEG Mafia. We would be truly touched if you subscribe and leave us a glowing review. And tell all of your friends. Yeah, all of them. And every week, we'll be gifting one lucky subscriber who leaves a five-star review a lifetime premium diamond membership to leechess.org. Unlocking all of their features. Even that? Especially that. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ChessFeelsPod. Oh, and if you didn't like what you heard, do not hesitate to message any feedback. No matter how critical or scathing. Directly to Mr. Dodgy, our social media manager, even though he doesn't know it. At Chess Problem. Yeah. Here we were talking about this whole idea of chess opening, saying something deep and profound about your character. And so, Gopal, do you think there is anything that you can learn about a person from seeing what openings they play? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we I talked about this a lot for like years, actually. Like we would, you know, be sitting at in a bar and just like just be chilling and like, you know, if we're just seeing people in front of us, like, ooh, she's cute. Like, what what kind of opening do you think she is? And like. <laughs> Polagaevsky variation of the Nidorf, like, <laughs> hell yeah. Um, so I think it does say something like a little bit about your personality. Um, but I mean, openings are not the same now as they were like, you know, let's say 10 years ago. A lot of narratives have changed. And have you, did you miss the segue I was trying to set you up for here? <laughs> no. He wanted you to say, go yeah. Paul, that like, it can't tell us necessarily about your personality, but it can definitely tell us about your sexual proclivities. Yeah. Oh, shit. Okay, here. Can we? That was like literally the setup and it was pretty amazing. I even gave it. you like a wink. Yeah. I, I, and then I thought you were getting there when you were like telling the thing and then I realized you weren't getting there. Can we redo that? Uh, okay. Um, you know, they can definitely say something about the per- their personalities, but definitely more... Um, I think they can tell you a lot about their sexual proclivity. One, one. Yeah.